Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with John Levy. How are you doing? Uh, wow. <laughs> Josh, a lot has stayed the same and a lot has changed since uh, you last had me on. So in the time since, I have made my very Jewish mother very proud because you are invited. My most recent book hit the New York Times bestseller list, premiered at number two on the Wall Street Journal, hit USA Today. And this month of August, the Wall Street Journal selected it as book of the month. So anybody who's a subscriber can get a copy from them for free. So that's been kind of crazy. But as you know, from writing, the amount of effort that goes into this stuff is just crazy. Some kind of burned out, frankly. Yeah. And I think you said, as I know from writing, and I also know from promoting a book, which is a, an essential part of being an author in this in today's world. Yeah. It's kind of funny. You don't, in my view, you don't get paid to write a book. You get paid to promote a book. The writing of the book is just what takes <laughs> just as much time. Right. So like, if you look at movie budgets, I, from what I understand, half of the budget is for the movie, half of the budget is for promoting the movie. And they have whole teams and it's just, you. yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure like, you have a team, but probably mostly you. So it was 12 to 16 hour days for six months. And I hope people, what, after I said, how are you doing? I laughed because we had, I went into autopilot mode of what I normally say is like, how are you doing? And we had just got off him saying of like how fatigued he was after that. And I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> and it, it's possibly because of me that all of that happened because of when I read it and it, like right off the bat, it's a, the stories, right? It's not just, here's a bunch of science facts. We talked about that last time. And the first story in it is like, I've been telling people about it, about Jean... Nidich, I believe. Nidich, who, well, read it. And she bucked the trend of what everyone was doing and was very successful. And it was through the relationships, through community, as opposed to... I think you can tell people what she did. It's not like okay, so, a secret. So here, here's, if I can give my version, that's not in uh-huh. the book. So traditionally... What we know from research is that if we hang out with people with certain habits, we end up adopting those habits to some degree. So if you hang out with people who exercise a lot, you end up exercising more. And if you hang out with people who eat a lot, you'll eat more. And Jean Neidich was a, in her mind, overweight and a rather large woman and wanted to get to what she viewed as a healthy weight and uh, tried all these crash diets, nothing worked. And then she did something really kind of crazy. She invited all of her friends that struggle with their weight to play mahjong together, but really she turned it kind of into an intervention. And the friends were all so supportive of each other. They loved the idea and said, let's keep doing this. And that was the birth of Weight Watchers. And whereas we're used to thinking, oh, if I hang out with people, I'll get those good or bad habits. Here's an incredible example of how you can bring people together who are really committed to something, who maybe don't have the greatest habits yet, but through their shared commitment and effort, everybody's better off. And they really developed a sense of community in the process, which is incredibly supportive when we're looking at habits, regardless of whether those habits are, how do we protect the environment to how do we you know, make sure our kids are eating healthy meals? And I think, I forget if it was in your book or if I looked it up separately, but I think that it's also one of, I mean, nothing is the cure-all for obesity. I mean, the rates are going up all the time, mm-hmm. but I think, I think Weight Watchers is among the most effective. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that like group-based commitment organizations are the ones that really do well. What clearly doesn't work is like shaming somebody, right? So, and, and we know this also from like changing behavior from the environment. 
if you walk down the street and I see you doing something, me going like, oh, you disgust me. How could you do that? I might get you to pick up your trash that one time, but you'll probably get resentful and kind of like curse me out or not want to change your behavior. Shame is not a very good motivator in the long run. It might work well for 15 minutes, but it doesn't produce really healthy long-term behavioral change. What does is often loving, supporting communities that have understanding and patience and, and respect. And that goes a long way because for human beings, this need for belonging is so intrinsic to our existence that if we can give people a sense of belonging and create a safe space, that psychological safety, then we can go much further. I was going to ask a question about, you're speaking very personally there. And so I have to go into, you strike me as someone nearly as geeky as me. Mm-hmm. And therefore, nearly as nerdy and not really socially apt or apt, I guess. And not socially apt or inept. I'm sure I'm. Yeah, not socially inept. apt. But... I, I don't know if inept, I don't know if apt is a word, but I just made it. Yeah. So socially inept is me. That word is aster, as they say, like the opposite of disaster. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of words like that. Yeah. And yeah, this is what I'm talking about. Like I can easily get into this word stuff. And I suspect that you are like me that. What you're talking about is something that you learned later in life and taught yourself or were able to learn yourself that, did you grow up feeling that way? Would you, could you have said that as a man half your age or when you were younger? Oh, that could I have said what? Aster? (laughs) (laughs) You know, what helps is support and loving and uh, community. I forget exactly how you said it. I, I don't know if I would have realized it because in my early years, I thought it was about me looking great and doing it all myself and getting it right and looking good. And when you're focused on looking good, it's really alienating, right? So have you ever heard this TED talk about super chickens? It's like such a- I haven't heard that one. So researchers apparently wanted to measure productivity. And the way that they did it was they looked at chickens because chickens lay eggs and you can easily count that. It's measurable. So the researchers split the chickens up into two groups, the control group, and then the second group was the same types of chickens, but the, they only bred the top producers so that they could get super chickens in the next generation, right? And they kept doing this. And what ended up happening is that the top super chicken outproduced any one of the people in the, or people, chickens, <laughs> the average group. But mostly it was because they were attacking those <laughs> other chickens and they became violent. And so the problem is that when you try to breed superstars, it often happens at other people's expense. But when you are just allowing for psychological safety and everybody to do their role, then on average, none of them is a star, but altogether they outproduce everybody else. And that's this idea of super chickens don't really work. That for human beings, when I was in my 20s, I was trying to outshine everybody and look better than them. I was trying to be a super chicken. And I don't think I realized the damage that that was doing to my relationships. Now, Once I realized that it was all about the community, the group, then it doesn't need to be about me. Then it's about, can I introduce people that will positively impact each other and make everybody more successful? Can I support friends who need support? Because when they succeed on average, I'll end up doing better too. This hits home a lot for me. I mean, I can't help but think of when I played sports and how I wanted to be the best player on the field. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't nearly the best. Then when I went to business school, I learned all this team stuff. And then I played a little bit of ultimate afterward and people were like, you're a great defender. And I, I'm, I was a terrible defender, but I was a much better team player. Mm. And it was much more 
effective. And we all know stories about Michael Jordan, like he was getting, he was getting his own scoring awards, but not getting the ring for winning the championship. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's what's really amusing. Do you, are you a big sports fan? Not as much anymore as I No, age. I'm completely not. But one of the people that I've had the pleasure of hosting for dinner is an amazing athlete by the name of Shane Battier. Uh, he's a player. He was on the Miami Heat. He's a two-time champion. And Battier is not known for being like a superstar. He's not LeBron, right? Or Jordan or any of these legends, right? But here's what's really interesting. Every team he's ever played on, somebody did like scientific research on this, outperformed the moment he joined the team. And that's really interesting. And what makes him exceptional is that he's what's called a glue player. A glue player is somebody who has such profound sportsmanship and such profound care for their teammates that everybody performs better. They're the glue of the team. And that's pretty incredible because there is no way I will ever be a Michael Jordan in anything I do, right? Like, I just don't necessarily have the interest of being that fully dedicated to any one thing. But what I can absolutely do is go into any environment and support everybody and be that glue. And I don't necessarily need the credit, but it, it's the difference potentially between the team doing good and the team doing great. And I think that's kind of where I'm happy to contribute because I will be honest, I've <laughs> like the amount of effort it takes to, let's say, be an Olympian, I'm, <laughs> I'm out. And I mean, one of the things I'm thinking of is in the air of the environment, when the team wins, credit or no credit, the air is cleaner, the water is cleaner, mm-hmm. the sea levels are not rising as much. And on a personal level, what you said hit home. I don't pretend that I'm, you know, the Dalai Lama here. But I definitely was about, I want to be the best. And there was a big shift in my life that now it's much more about service, serving others. And, but that means learning about others, learning what their interests are and where our common, where we share interests. And, and that's a, a big curiosity. And, mm. and I really love that. My goal for this podcast and my strategy for working on the environment is, here's a way I put it often, is if you really want to discourage someone from doing something, judge them the first time they do it. That really makes them nervous. What's more effective is support, listening, finding out what's, what's valuable to them and making it relevant to them. And community. The purpose of this podcast is to bring people, often who people who have no background in science or the environment or, or experience there or knowledge, and give them a chance to act on something that matters to them and then share their experience, even if the experience is not what they expected even or what they'd hoped for. Sometimes, because listeners are of all sorts, some people have tried and they're like, oh, this doesn't work. And for them to hear something from someone that it's not so easy is probably more supportive for them than someone who comes on and says, oh, this is easy. Everyone should do it. So let me ask you a question, if Uh that's okay. The goal you say is to affect the community. Now, you do a great job connecting with individuals, right? Mm -hmm. Have you ever brought those guests together? Like, have you ever had experiences where you actually develop a sense of community beyond the individual level? I've had a couple of panels where people interacted with each other. Uh, they took a lot of planning. The bigger yep. sense of community is with the other hosts. There are six other This Sustainable Life podcasts, each re- reaching different communities. And we have a podcast host summit every month. So there's, that community is very strong. 
there's another team that helps me with the web page and things like that. So that team, but they're not on the podcast. I do want to, it's on the list of things to do. And there's some really amazing things that I have not done one thing yet on, but I really, you know, I just had my 50th birthday a couple of weeks ago. Really? I was, you don't yeah. look a day over 49 and a half. <laughs> it's the diet. And, yeah. uh, and it, it shaved six months off. And I was in the spring, I was starting to work on doing like a big birthday event where I was going to have everyone over from my famous no packaging vegans too, but I couldn't have them over here because 500 square feet wouldn't do it. Yeah. And I was trying to see if I could get enough people from the New York area, people who were around to come together. And the people I spoke to of the event planners and so forth, it was just the, the risk of COVID getting too big and it didn't happen, but I really wanted to, I, I've been trying to figure out how to start making that happen. It's a goal. I haven't done it yet. So are you planning on bringing people in person or digitally? Well, I really want to do it uh, both. You'd really want to do it both? <laughs> the way you started that sentence, I thought you were going to say, I really only want to do it both. I, I really want the dinner to be a part of it, but I don't want to hold back just because people being local or not. Great. So I guess the question is, and we explore this in the book, what would actually attract or gather people? So what format digitally could we use? that would actually have people really want to show up and look forward to it? I would think that asking people how things have gone since our second conversation. I think a lot of people probably have stuck with it and enjoyed it and it went on to more. And I bet there's a lot of people who... I think that's a nice icebreaker question. I think we need to get a little bit more into something novel. So if we look at human connection, right? What actually causes us to connect? Mm -hmm. Overwhelmingly, human beings connect over common ground. So either meet through a common friend, a shared activity, interest, right? Like these are the things. Now, I'm an individual who cares about my own actions for the environment and will support organizations. I'm not showing up to an environment meetup. It's just not me, right? I'm already so taxed, so burnt out right now and have so many nonprofits that I support. It's, so the question is, what would actually have people show up. And the, I would argue that we need to get their interest, not their attention, right? So we need to figure out something new or different that when they engage with it, they get more and more curious. When they hear about it, they get more and more curious. So they want to engage further. Does that make sense? I think so. So for example, you know, I run these dinners. 12 people at a time. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. They cook dinner together. When they sit down to eat, we play a game and they find out who they're sitting with. And it's these fancy people, Nobel laureates, Olympians, all that kind of stuff. Now, that means that we have a format that's fundamentally novel, right? It gets people's attention. I've never heard of anything like that. The second thing that's interesting is that it's impeccably curated. So everybody wants a seat at the table, right? The third thing is that it's generous. I'm not like asking people to pay some crazy amount for it. It's I pay for all the really terrible food. So I know that your no packaging chili is like legendary, but let's go one step beyond that. What's an activity that might be really phenomenally interesting? Is it going for a hike together and enjoying nature? And then there's a top talk at the top of the hike. Is it that we have an experience where each person gets to bring one problem and we have a reciprocity circle so that people will support each other and provide introductions and resources and so on. Or is there something completely different? 
right? When we're going to really look at how to gather people in a meaningful way and give them a sense of belonging and community and push the mission of your, your podcast, then what, what unique thing can we do? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not expecting and, like a real answer. It's, okay. you know, we're on a podcast right now. It's, it's a tough thinking exercise, but I mean, I'll tell you what, okay. I'll tell you what pops up first is that whether it's a good answer or not, I don't know, but it's my first answer. And sometimes you got to clear away this stuff and maybe it's a great answer. I don't know, but the process of best answer ever, <laughs> the process of, of what's now called the Spodic method is a joyful process to do. And I think people would like learning it. That is because the end result is when you start doing it with people around you, you start finding out the values of people around you. They like sharing it. And then you start finding that the people around you are all doing a little bit. And then it feels like you're swimming downstream instead of upstream. So if I went to the people, here's, I'm still just going here. If I'm going in the wrong direction, let me know. Uh, but there are a lot of people who had a rewarding experience. Okay. And if I go to them and said, how would you like to be able to give people around you the rewarding experience that you had? And when you say they've had a rewarding experience, you mean in terms of what? Applying something that they... I hope that the following happens. And this is, I'm, you know, I may be projecting what I want to see, but people generally expect acting on sustainability is a burden, it's a chore, it's deprivation, it's sacrifice. It's something that they, they really prefer not to do, but they kind of have to do. Yes. If I do it effectively, I speak to them, I evoke their, what the environment means to them, their intrinsic, it becomes intrinsic motivation. So they're not doing something to save the world. They're doing something based on values of theirs, a memory of, of a childhood, uh, baking apple pie with mom after picking the apples together from the tree at the end of the block. And maybe that tree was cut down to make a parking lot or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so they have these feelings of, oh, this, it's family. Isn't that that song? Uh... Pay paradise and put up yeah, a parking, lot? parking lot. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> And actually, you know, when the hosts, when I train them, they do the exercise with me and I have to keep coming up with things to do. And one of the things was to turn off all my electronics and sing. And one of the songs that I've been singing is Big Yellow Taxi, which mm -hmm. is the name of the song, uh, the Johnny Mitchell song. So that brings a big smile to my face. So when they act, they often find themselves enjoying something that they thought was going to be a burden. And it's, they're doing something, not what New York Times told them to do or Greenpeace told them to do. Uh, I just interviewed this guy, a mixed martial artist from Brazil. He's living in Singapore. He happens to just set the world record for most number of burpees in an hour, which is, yeah, I read that story um, in contact. 931, I think, or something like that. 951, yeah. 951, that's really. Yeah. And I asked him, what is he, and, and before we started recording, I said, you know, we're going to do this process. He said, uh, sure, whatever. I don't know anything about the environment, though. And when I asked him what the environment meant to him, he started talking about growing up in Brazil, very poor area, uh, on a farm with mountains in the distance and the green, and sometimes there'd be, I didn't realize this, but sometimes there'd be snow or ice. And, and he got very wistful about that. And he talked about growing up there. And then when I asked him if he could think of something to do to act on those feelings, not to save the world, but you know, to act on those feelings, he hit on, he's just going to buy, the goal is one plant. He has no plants in his place. And he thinks cities are unhealthy and that they're missing something. So he's going to buy a plant, but specifically he's going to go to the store that he described that like, they don't just sell plants. They're going to teach him what to do and how and why and so forth. And he's not doing it for me. He's not doing it for the world. Ours on the Upper West Side is a coffee shop that sells plants. Well, he's in the Singapore. So uh, I don't know. But he talked about, you know, he got really excited and enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen because we're going to talk. It'll be two months before we talk next. Yeah, yeah. But 
I'm sure he's not going to talk about carbon dioxide and mercury and methane and plastic. He's going to probably talk about, I bet he's going to talk about his grandmother and his family growing up and how Singapore, he's probably going to find more green in Singapore than he saw before. Stuff like that. I'm not, I can't be sure. And so that, that's what I mean by rewarding experience. It's intrinsic rather than extrinsic. It's, it's meaningful rather than, dare I say he, he felt inspired rather than complying. Yeah, yeah. And the reason I bring someone like him on is that, well, I don't know how well he's known, but you know, increasingly I want to bring on very well-known people, you know, Oprah, LeBron, that people say, oh, that person's doing it. That's someone in my world who's doing it. I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. And if I do that with someone on the street, not many people would know just the average person on the street, but Oprah, there's like 10 million people that like, she's someone that they know. Mm-hmm. So I absolutely get the, the approach of the method, which is to tie it to something that people personally care about. But I'm going to take it one step back. Mm-hmm. What causes somebody to care about something? I'm not expecting you to know the answer. This is like where my research comes in. In, in the area of the environment, I think that, I think it's to some extent it's built in. I mean, to want clean air rather than dirty air is, let me see, I guess if you've had an experience. Here's of, the problem. If you tell people, oh, 20% of people, this isn't an accurate statistic, 20% of people get cancer, even 50%, whatever it is, we have a natural inclination to assume that we're not the ones that it happens to. It happens to the other people out there. And so, yeah, I mean, the air is not great here, but you know, it's okay because I don't know anything else and it's all relative. I don't realize how bad the air is until I'm in an environment that's different, right? Because it's all relative to what you're used to. So I would say, yeah, we care-ish about the environment. What we really care about is that our internet doesn't go down. <laughs> like what we really care about is that, you know, we're not alone and that we have a date on Thursday night or whatever. The environment in probably for most people, I would guess, is something that occurs to them only when there's a big problem that directly affects them. That's what people think, but they already have caring in their life already. Everyone has that apple tree at the end of the block. It might not be for them an apple tree. I'm, I'm going to have to challenge this a little. Please. Everybody has a little bit of anything. And so what you're talking about is focalism or anchoring. You anchor to an idea and then you have people focus on it as a byproduct. It seems disproportionately important to them. You have that also for siblings. You have that for family. You have that for high quality furniture. Uh, You have that for anything that you could evoke, like a, a type of frequency illusion. So if I say, Josh, I want you to think back to a time where maybe... You were supposed to check into a hotel and the hotel wasn't ready. So you were wandering around the city, really tired, trying to figure out where to go. And you had no idea, or maybe you got kicked out of somewhere and now you were stuck and you were, it's late at night. Has that ever happened to you? Or maybe you're strolling, trying to find a cab in an empty area. You just don't know what to do with yourself. And then I could go down that path and suddenly homelessness is this really important issue to you. But the, I think the bigger question is, what actually gets people to care about something in the first place. And if you generally look, sure, I'll believe that some things are imprinted on us, granted, like eating, right? We all get hungry at some point. But in general, it's a byproduct, I would argue, about either exposure or effort. So there's something called the mere exposure effect. And in the book, I go into depth on this, which is if you have the same initials as somebody, you're 11% more likely to date them. 
That's simply... So dentists named Dennis, things like that? Exactly. Or living in Denver, being a dentist. After the superstorm Katrina, there were more girls born with the names like Catherine and Katie because the sound was so familiar. So familiarity breeds liking and caring. Bottom line, the difference between you trusting somebody or not might be that you see them in your hallways, in your building. That doesn't mean you should trust them anymore versus the person you've never seen before. It's just the mechanics of the human brain. And there's also something called the IKEA effect, which states that we disproportionately care about our IKEA furniture because we had to assemble it. Anything we put effort into, we care about disproportionately. You've spent much of your life working on the environment. You're going to care about that disproportionately. If somebody worked on public health and the AIDS epidemic, they'll care about that probably more than the environment. And that's fair because that's what has been the focus of their life. So my argument isn't, okay, I need to expose that one thing that you maybe have cared about that's a symbol. It's maybe the answer is in getting people to put in a bit more effort so that they care more, so that they self-identify. Because if I can get you to self-identify as a thing, you're more likely to act consistent with that. But there's this thing called stacking, or at least that's what I call it. So if we're walking down the street and I don't know you and I ask you for directions, you probably won't give them to me. But if I ask you for the time and then ask you for the directions, you probably will. And that's because once I'm seen as somebody worthy of effort, I've seen as somebody worthy of more effort. And so if I can get somebody to perform a minute task for the environment, I can then stack that with the request for a bigger one because they begin to identify themselves as the type of person who cares. My general argument is, yeah, it's nice if somebody has a memory or not. That's a really complex, long process that you have to go through with each person. Maybe we could just stack a bunch of small things that we could ask of them that suddenly gets a disproportionate number of people to care at scale. I think that's what people are doing. I think most people read it as coercion and they're like, I I see what you're doing there. When you say, so coercion would suggest that you're not being, that there's no transparency or benevolence, right? Coercion suggests malevolence. I don't think so. I, when people say, when there's an article in the New York Times that says, here's 10, thing, here's 10 things you can do for the environment, or Greenpeace says, you know, here's something you can do. That can't be coercion because you're opting to read into it. Like you don't have to read the article. If it said 10 million, uh, if you read this, you'll get $10 million. Ha, tricked you. Here are 10 things you need to do to save the environment. That's coercion. I've coerced. If there's an article about, here's what Greenpeace actually says makes a difference. It might be clickbait, but it's an article that says exactly what it is. So you can't be coerced. You might be guilted, depending on the way that it's written. I don't know. Maybe we have slightly different definitions of coercion. I don't think there has to be hiding intent. You can still coerce someone even if that's just... All right, but let's take your definition of coercion. Are you looking it up? The practice of persuading somebody to do something by using force or threat. If you're reading an article, nobody is forcing you unless you're in like your school teacher is requiring it, then it's coercion. Oh, that definitely happens too. Uh, but, that, no doubt. But I'm, what I'm okay, saying so let's is- take a, So not coercion then. It's still like um, cajoling or, I mean, it's still extrinsic. It's still pushing. It's still not, it's, it's implying that you don't want to do it. Otherwise, no one says- Meatless, uh, people say meatless Monday, but no one says seatbelt Tuesdays or. Well, one's a law that's been culturally adopted since the 19, what is it, 
fifties, right? So we're now like 70 years in on it. So it's, there's no need to do it also because you can eat meat anywhere. You only need a seatbelt when you're in a car. My point is, I think that it implies that you don't want to do it. It reinforces you don't want to do it, except that we do this little thing. And so people feel like, yeah, I really don't want to do it. I think a lot of people had the experience where they go for a week without straws. And during that week, it's kind of annoying because someone brings them straws. And they're like, oh, I'm trying not to get those. Can you take it back? And the guy's like, well, well I'm just going to throw it away. You might as well keep it. And then they're like, oh, it's kind of confusing. And at the end of the week, the world is exactly as it was at the beginning of the week. And so like there, I proved it. What I do doesn't matter. That's obviously not a proof, but they feel that way. Here's a question. I've, I've never heard of somebody doing this. So it, I'm sure you're exposed to a lot more of it than I am. So have you ever read, I think it was the book Made to Stick. Mm-hmm. I have not. Uh, really With the duct tape book. on the cover? What? Yeah, exactly. With, the, yeah, the cover, yeah. And I think there they said, how do we get people to stop littering in Texas? And they had a huge issue with highway littering that was costing the state millions of dollars. I'm not sure I have this exactly right. But essentially, at a certain point, they released a campaign that was just so brilliant. It was some marketing firm that worked on it with uh, Texas Transportation. And, just don't uh, mess with Texas? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because that kind of points to what you're saying, which is now I can actually take pride in something because they understand in the Lone Star State, nobody messes with them, right? It's a matter of pride. It's almost like toxic masculinity used to protect the, the state. But, and that one's, I think, a great example of what you're talking about. It's speaking to motivators that are more appealing than switch to this light bulb. Yes, it'll cost you hundreds of dollars to do for your home, but in the long run, you save money and it's better for the environment, Right. Yeah. Note that it's the second step though. It's a later step. I think you might be discounting. I believe that you're discounting the intensity of the emotion that people feel toward their, some experience that they've had in their life that was meaningful and purposeful and effort. But the don't mess with Texas thing is a halo effect. You're taking the way that you feel about the state and, or your independence or whatever it is. And then you're using a halo effect to apply it to another area within the state, right? So it's not saying Texas is the place with clean air. We love our clean air. It's no, Texas does it kind of like our way or whatever it is. And nobody messes with Texas. I don't care if it's with laws or if it's with dirt, but this don't mess with Texas, but it's a halo effect. Nobody's saying, oh, I'm so upset that there's now oil rigs that are pumping massive amounts of oil out of the ground in Texas. We got to stop those. That's messing with Texas. Nobody's saying any of that. It's simply saying, show the state respect. And this is one of the ways that you do that. They don't like that's almost irrelevant of the environment. Am I, would you say that I'm, that the strategy that I've adopted of Uh asking people what the environment means to them, getting to some emotions that are intrinsic that, that have been there since forever, and then inviting them to act on that, then I don't think, I think it's great. I just don't think it scales. So how do we get that to reach a million people? And the answer is it's going to be really hard. Why? Because it's essentially therapy, right? Like it takes, requires an actual conversation and exploration. It's phenomenal one-on-one because you have your expertise and years of exploration and you're like a really calm, lovely person. Me, I'm not as calm or as lovely as you are. I'd essentially be like, shut up, just go recycle. I don't want to hear this anymore. But so the, the growth strategy is to grow in the number of podcast hosts. 
uh-huh. to grow in and then in the renown of the guests. My goal is not to do this podcast until 7.9 billion people have heard it. That is not my strategy at all. The strategy is I believe that there are going to be some people who are guests on the podcast who are at leverage points in system. And also when I consult with companies, they often don't want their leaders to be on the podcast. So that's like a private thing because they're not necessarily, but that's where a CEO, an executive team, I go through it with them and now their company culture changes. So that's organizational change, sure. but it's the same technique. And then I have to take a step back and, and also realize that it is not, I'm not reaching millions of people yet. I'm not even close. So as much as I, even if what I'm saying is great, I've been at this, I don't know, I'm probably coming up, coming up on finishing my third year. So starting my fourth year soon. And I've not been having, I'm, you know, my name is not up there with Greta's. Not, I'm not talking about fame here. I'm talking about effect of, of reaching an audience. It takes a long time to like, you know, <laughs> to do that. So I think what your strategy works really well on the individual level, right? And it, it might even work to inspire people to have, get in the conversation with Beyonce and she'll inspire some people to do it. But I'm curious, if I'm a listener, am I actually following along and asking the same question of myself? And I'm not sure the process transfers that well, because if it wasn't for you asking me the questions and guiding me through it and interacting with me, then I'm not sure it would actually change behavior. And I think the perfect example is the number of people who read audiobooks and then do nothing in that audiobook, right? I know people who are obsessive audiobook listeners and they'll footnote things. They'll be like, yeah, according to Malcolm Gladwell X. But then when you ask them, oh, have you done any of this? They're like, no, I mean, no. I was like, but it seems like you have all the answers. You've read all the books, but you're still not doing any of it. And that's where my issue is. It's that I don't just want it to be a cognitive thing, right? People invest effort and then they'll invest more effort and more effort if there's a positive feedback process. And so, yes, if you can motivate people based on their core values and you've, you can speak to that in an interesting way, that's amazing. But the alternate or a alternate option is to get stacking actions that actually causes them to care in general to self-identify as a type of person. There's a, a funny experiment where they came to people and asked, can we put a really large sign in your uh, yard? Do you know this one? Yeah, but not everyone, all the listeners do so. So uh, can we put a large sign? I believe it was about like driving safely because they were in like a kid zone. And most people said, absolutely no. And then they went to another group of people in the same area and said, hey, do you feel comfortable putting a sticker telling people to drive safely? They said, sure. And then when they came back to them and they said, hey, can we put up this big sign? They said, yes. Or not everybody, but a disproportionate number. And that's because once you self-identify and you've invested effort and committed towards something, it's easier to have people to go along with that next step. And so that kind of behavior scales much faster and much more in my mind than the intensity of an exploratory conversation. Because you get the same ideas of caring, but it's because of new actions that they took that they self-identify with. If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. 
Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. So this is telling me a couple things that are coming to my head are to re-engage people who have been on the show. I also think that I tend to think in systems and, and some systems have leverage points and you can change a whole lot of people. If they're not at leverage points, they won't, they won't do anything. Mm-hmm. And changing values and goals of the system can make a big difference. And also people have very few role models of people who are acting and enjoying living joyfully, sustainably. And so I'm trying to create role models like that so that, okay, so people have come back and said, wow, that's an amazing experience. I'm really glad I did that. I've not talked to most of them since, although a number of them have become very good friends. So if I, all right, this isn't going to scale, but I could stack at least with some of them, bring some of them back and say, remember that what we did before, how about we do it again? Or um, let's see where, where it's gone since, or you know, do some equivalent of the bigger sign in the, in the, in the lawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, we're not getting scaling, but we are getting a tighter community, I guess, a more shared experience and maybe getting them to interact with each other. So here's what I would argue. Right now, you have done a phenomenal job creating a hub and spoke, right? So you're the center of the, you're the hub. You have a whole bunch of people that you've connected to individually, right? Mm -hmm. And you've been able to, like, you're a really kind person. You ask thoughtful questions. You've gotten in with them and you've created like a meaningful relationship. But the question is, will that carry the day? And I would argue that it won't. And it won't because social change really doesn't happen on the individual level that well. It happens on the community level much more effectively. The objective, I would suggest, is to connect all those people to each other for two reasons or three. One is that the more friends, Josh, you and I have in common, the more we'll naturally be connected to each other. And the reason is that then I'll be hanging out with another friend and they'll say, oh, I just saw Josh. And I go, oh, cool. What's he up to? And then I get the update, right? Then you don't have to be the one that has outgoing communication all the time. Also, there's a really cynical theory that states that if I introduce you to five people and you become friends with them, that's five relationships elsewhere you don't have time for anymore. So now you're really in my social circle, right? Mm. So here's the point. If you start really developing a sense of community among all these people that have made a commitment to themselves and the planet, who are very clear on their mission, and now they're interacting with each other, it will become more alive and real in their life as a byproduct than if it's just you and them the times you happen to talk. This is really resonating with me. So I'm thinking of how... So that dinner would have been a really useful thing, an in-person dinner. Yes. Assuming it worked out. But also like something over a video platform like Zoom or Teams or something right? So one will give you scale and distance across the country or world. The other will give you a sense of true intimacy and like a greater sense of belonging in person. So if you started hosting a weekly dinner and just started inviting people and then doing some kind of games or activities, it could even just be like a games night and you call it like the sustainable games night or whatever. And you, all the food and activities have to be sustainable to some, right? So like you play hand-carved mancala or something. I don't even know what, right? Well, I think having them cook the meal instead of me cook the meal would probably be sure a good... The, the, I would even maybe then take it one step further, which is 
why don't you go to a local farmer's market and go shopping with them? Right. So then they actually have the experience and know what to do. But here's the point. I personally hate dinners. I know I run probably like one of the most famous dinners in history. I hate them. And the reason I hate them is that you're stuck next to somebody and you don't know if it's going to be a great conversation or not, which is why I don't encourage, what's it called? People hosting dinners. I encourage them hosting activities that have social interaction. Like with a game, you can change seats, you can change games, right? There's like rotations that you, dinners are just much more difficult. It's like a socially awkward distance, depending on the depth of the table or where the dinner and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying you want a thing that is wholly yours that develops a reputation. And then as you keep running it, once you start getting like a format that's really, really strong, because you'll improve it over time. Like my first dinners were terrible. Air conditioner broke, like the whole nine yards, everything went wrong. Then over time, you start inviting media to attend as guests. That way, eventually, when you want your story told, you have people to go to. And then your experience develops more and more reputation and you can invite higher and higher profile people. Then it becomes this place where thought leaders come together. They explore ideas, they meet, they get a seat at the table. But I really emphasize this. You want to find your own format because nobody wants to attend a copycat of something. You want that thing that's uniquely you, right? Something that also isn't preachy, right? It's not like, like I'm going to lecture you on how to do X is not. And if you want to do a lecture series, then people will go to your lectures. But yeah, so now I'm thinking lots of different things. And that I mean, also thinking of starting with, I'm kind of thinking of saying, <laughs> this will work or not. Everyone listening to this, if you're around New York City and you want to come to a dinner with me, email me and let me know and let's put something together. So there's a, a guy in France that you can Google this. This is a dinner that's kind of wild, who every week has an open door policy and anyone can just show up. You just have to call ahead and say that you, who you are and how many people you're with. But like literally we'll let strangers in and they all have dinner together. There's a guy named uh, Chris Shambra. Oh yeah, Chris. Yeah, 747. Exactly. And, you know, that dinner costs nothing. It's like kind of like a couple packs of pasta and some pasta sauce and I think some garlic bread. Like the total cost of feeding 20 people that is like $30 or something. I don't know. Plus all the disposable stuff that he uses because I've brought my own stuff. <laughs> yep. So, but that, that can be easily solved. Then you just get people to wash dishes after, right? Like mm. we don't, yeah. at, at our dinner, we don't have anything disposable. We have reusable everything down to the napkins, right? So it just requires a bit more of investment to prevent the, the disposable stuff. But it's, that's a, an issue you can tackle. My curiosity is maybe the times that people are going to be most available to do something fun is actually brunch, right? So like you do a Saturday brunch every week. Maybe it's something that you want people to be able to do with families because your target audience is all family-based people. There's a guy, so good. He decided he wanted to integrate himself into Silicon Valley. So he hired a professional soccer team to teach kids how to play soccer. And then he invited all the families of the top VCs so that the kids could play soccer and on the sidelines, he could hang out and talk to them. So now it's a family-based activity where people feel cool being invited because they get to look like the cool mom and dad for getting their kids into this experience. Nobody else is doing anything like it. 
And now they're in the middle of deal flows that are really important. So think about it like this. Is there something that you could arrange for families if it's, or maybe you want to meet younger people, whatever it is, but please do not get stuck on dinner. Dinner is a great time. It's a terrible activity, right? We did an experience called zero hour and zero hour people came in. There were 16 of them, four tables of four. They grab some food, they sit down and 30 minutes in, they get all their food and water taken away from them. And then video footage of, I believe it was Johannesburg was the first major city to run out of water. And it was actual news footage showing that people could fill up water at one of 20 stations protected by guards, like all this crazy stuff. And we told people each table is now a family unit. In order to survive, you have to figure out how to clean and disinfect this dirty water. And we gave them a giant bucket of dirty water. And then they had a bit of money and we had a station set up that functioned like a sales outpost and they could buy supplies to make filters, charcoal, sand, chlorine to kill the bacteria, all of it. And then we tested the water and for purity and everything after they made it. And if they could make packets of water, then they could go to kind of the next level of the project. But you see, this is a shared emotional experience that happens during dinner time. That's highly novel where people make friends and learn about the environment. Because afterwards, once they were done, we had a conversation about treating our oceans well. And then we can have a conversation that actually matters because they've had this emotional experience. This is fantastic. I really appreciate this. I'm looking at the time and I know that you have to go. So as painful as it is for me to say, let's wrap this up. Please let me know when you're back in town and we can, if you're up for following up this conversation, recorded or otherwise. How about this? I'll cut you a deal. Yeah. You come up with some ideas, shoot me an email, and I will give you feedback so that you can create something that's your own. Because just having another dinner, not that interesting. Like it's great. It's a great first step, but it's fundamentally different than giving people an experience that's emotionally tied to the values you care about. And when people invest effort into something like that and make friends around it, that's when community starts. Let me sit back to what you just said to make sure I got it. So dinner, it's fine to have it during dinner. It's fine not to have it during dinner, but that's not the point of it. The point is for people to interact with each other, ideally something unique, but also tied to me, tied to what it's about, where they interact with each other and they put effort in. Yes. And probably a growing effort. Like the first time, maybe not as big, but maybe the second time bigger. Or the first five minutes is something small. And the second 10 minutes, it's like a larger thing. And so that way you get a flywheel effect. That way- at the end of an hour, people feel more bonded to each other doing these activities than they would in weeks of working at the same company and just seeing each other on Zoom. So I thank you now for this is what's going to keep me up at night as I'm trying to fall asleep is putting these ingredients together into something that works. I'll email you when something comes up. Awesome. Anything you want to close with? Uh, Just uh, if you all want to continue making my mother very proud, uh, pick up 12 or more copies of You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. There's tons of interesting stories, like the likes of which of Gene Knightage, all the way through to uh, uh, crazy tales from the Olympics and all the way through to the theft of one of the wildest paintings in, in history. Like the, It's like an art heist that you wouldn't believe. And thanks for having me on, Josh. This has been a real pleasure. John Levy, thank you very much. 
How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.